2: What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here, and I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return, including shoutouts on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that, too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you, and keep looking up. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan spread. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today on Summer in the Skies.
0: Thanks for having me, man. I'm really excited to be here.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I've been following your, your work for a while now. And um, as soon as I heard this new project you were working on, I just I knew I had to talk to you. Not only am I a comic book nerd, I'm clearly a UFO nerd, as I'm now learning, you are as well. So this is going to be fun, man. Um, we're going to talk all about your uh, your new project, Blue Book. Oh, I didn't even mean to do that. Your new project, Blue Book. There we go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, project Comma Blue Book.
2: Yeah, let's get the comma in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't want to get sued or anything by the Air Force. Um, <laughs> let's let's do the origin story though. If we're going to go the comic book route, man, what is your your Peter Parker moment. What kind of got you into comics? Um, yeah. How did it lead you to where you are today as a an artist, a writer in the comic book industry? How did you get to where you are today? There we go.
0: You know, first I can say that like the UFO stuff predates my 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 comic book or or artistic life. You know, the UFO oh, wow. stuff was actually pretty early on formative for me um it started with my my mother and my and this will tie back and later to blue book uh my mother and her her sister who is legally blind had a ufo sighting and they had told me about this when i was a little kid and one of the things they were saying was um my aunt she can't see so she said but it was your mother's voice i knew that she was seeing something extraordinary and then she she knew like even without being able to see it that she was witnessing something that was unusual and and not uh you know probably unearthly you know or at least Mm -hmm. you know not normal like an airplane and and, and that sort of stuff um so early on uh with those stories and like ghost stories like my mom and i we always watch um any documentary about that stuff you know especially um in search of at the time was like the Program to catch and, and reruns right. and, and whatnot so the ufo thing was was super early um and i think that helped my imagination as a kid because let's face when we're talking about ufos so much of this stuff is unknown and a lot of what we're doing is supposition and kind of putting pieces together to try and make sense of all of this stuff so mm-hmm. I, I think those early conversations helped my brain develop creatively um, So that being said that the actual comic book stuff came in uh, probably when I was like 12 or 13, Um, I'd moved from New Jersey back to Texas. I had family in in Texas and even though I was born there, I was raised in Jersey and I had a very Jersey kind of attitude and stuff. And then we moved to Texas and everything was different. And I, I, I just, I couldn't assimilate and I locked myself in my room and long story short, ended up at a yard sale where we found some comic books and uh, I was like, okay, I, I remember these and this is cool. And, and I just kind of started to delve into that world. Um, but then it was when I moved back to Jersey shortly later, I was at a 7-Eleven and there was this X-Men annual uh, number nine that Art Adams drew and they, they the X-Men right. go to Asgard. And mm-hmm. it went from like liking comics and I was tracing stuff and really interested and started reading to going, this is what I want to do. It was, it was that specific book. And I'm not a person who can name off issues of comics and stuff. There's, there's only a handful that I can. And, and that was so formulative on me. It was that and then the follow-up issue to that was New Mutants number two, where the New Mutants go to Asgard and they're all together and stuff. And those things, those, so those comics mixed with uh, mythology, because you know they, they were off to see Thor and stuff and, and Asgard. So those comics got me interested in mythology. The mythology also came back to the UFO stuff. Like it's it's interesting that all it makes sense that these things influenced me, um, and that's sort of how I got into the comics and started drawing.
2: Cool. Okay, so you were an artist first before you started delving into writing as well. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Cool. Um, you know, it was a good place to just be in your own head for hours and days at a time. You know, um, I uh, I know the feeling, man. I mean,
2: right you know. It. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And, you know, this is going to be small potatoes compared to you. But I remember when I was 12, 13, I created my own comic book character. He was called the Challenger. And it was based on my dad used to have a Challenger car when he was like, you know, a teenager. And I remember seeing photos of him and he looked so cool. He looked like Kelso from that Saturday show. And he had his his Challenger Blood Red Car, and I was like, that's a cool comic book hero name. I'm going to give it a try. So that's I ended so up cool. writing, like, 20 issues of this little comic of the Challenger, created mm-hmm. the whole mythology, and um they got tucked away. And I, you know, for years, I was meaning to ask my mom, like, whatever happened to those? And she told me that she accidentally threw them out. So I had that tragic moment of what could have yeah. been – with the challenger, but a um, classic <laughs> story. I know same with my comic books. Like you said, X-Men got me into the world. Um, I remember specifically I was, I was an athlete, you know, baseball was my life and stuff like that. And then one night QVC of all things shopping network was on and they were doing the like uncanny X-Men one through like 20. They were selling them as a, as like a lot. And I was like, what is this? And my mom, yeah was like a QVC junkie. And she's oh like, my whoa, Ryan's interested in something on there. I need to, that's what I'll use to relate to <laughs> my kid. QVC
0: legitimized your, your mother's view of your, your hobby. <laughs> yep,
2: exactly. Yeah. I wish that happened with UFOs too, man, but um, no, that's a whole different <laughs> journey. But yeah, I have QVC and my mother to thank and the uncanny that's X-Men awesome. for getting me into it. But um, wow. I really went on a tangent. This is not my origin. This is you. Um, <laughs> so that's pretty cool so you started drawing um when did you did you go to school uh for, for no. art or anything like that
0: no um i grew up a uh, pretty lower blue blue class pretty poor for for the most part um yeah. so uh yeah there wasn't any schooling but i was i would go to conventions and meet other local comic artists uh, in new jersey the two guys that i met first was uh Neil Vokes and Rich Rankin, and they were doing this black and white comic called Eagle. Um, and they were local, so I could be in touch with them and meet them and stuff. And, and those same sort of circles I met um, Adam Hughes, who's huge legendary comic book artist. Um, and he was only one town over from me and like a couple of years older than I was. So we found each other just before he broke in and we learned from each other. Him more teaching me than anything else, because even back then he was already stellar. Um, even before he was published, um, so those were my, my schools. Was was meeting other people, um, and in fact, I I didn't even, I didn't finish high school because I was cutting so many days uh, to stay home and draw, or I'd be up all night drawing. And while I was technically passing my classes, they started getting into this whole attendance thing. <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah, they kicked me out. Basically, I was I was I was going to have to repeat my junior year and I gave myself that summer. I was like, I've made some leeway. I've been published already. I was first published when I was like 14. Um, oh, wow. I was sending out uh, what's called inking. So when, when you see a black and white comic or color comic, the physical line work, that's called inking. And usually there's somebody who draws it in pencil first and then somebody who goes over in ink to embellish it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's its own art form and it's, it's misunderstood as kind of a, a joke from, like, Kevin Smith's Mallrats that inkers are tracers. It's not that, Right, but, I
2: remember that. And I know uh, Jimmy Church said said that wasn't a real thing. <laughs> Jimmy Church, inking is a real thing. Yeah. Man, you, <laughs> so let's just get that out of the way. I love him to death, but he said that yeah. on an interview with you, and I'm like, dude, stop. That's a real job. Yeah. It's like saying, so you know, theater's first... not a real job. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I broke in first with, with that very – early on. So I knew I had a chance and I was like, well, if I don't get a job over the summer, I'll just, I'll, I'll do the thing. I'll get the GD or, or suck it up and just repeat the school or whatever. But I, I was able to get work and I just went forward and, and, and didn't look back. Um, and that's not a path that obviously that I recommend. I don't have many young people you have listening to your show. I don't recommend that path, but sometimes when you have a, a, a passion feels like a really, it's, it's not in a, it's not the right word. Even like you find a path in life and you just know nothing should move you off of that path. And this is what you're going Mm -hmm. to do. So once I really knew that this was all that, that I had for me was, was comics and drawing. Um, it was a singular force for me. I, I quit playing sports. I stopped hanging out with friends. I didn't party. Um, I, I, I was just literally just drawing constantly. Um, and I was just completely, completely and utterly focused on it, you know, even to this day, um, you know, other things in my life kind of have to make room for the art first. And that's not always great, but it's something that I've accepted about myself.
2: Yeah, it's a sacrifice a lot of artists make. And if it's going to be your living, I completely understand that. I mean, um, well, I got to ask you this. Do you do you remember the first comic you ever read?
0: It's really weird. Um, it was... In that little town that I grew up in, Bordentown, it was this old colonial town, and there was a barber there with this Italian guy, with thick Italian accent, still even though he's like in his seventies, and uh, like he was the town barber. And I remember specifically as a kid going and like sitting in this really old building where it had super super high ceilings and what is that that kind of like engraving on the ceilings? I forget what it's called, uh, but they're all oh. up on the roof. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it was like from the late 1800s or early 1900s. And um, I remember sitting in a chair and looking to the side of me and I must have been five or six and I saw Spider-Man. And even though I couldn't read it, I understood what it was because I was watching um, this old show called the electric company, which had these skits of live action Um, (laughs) Spider-Man and they were really goofy and they're fun to watch on YouTube. Morgan Freeman was in some of them and stuff and, um, but that's that's the thing I remember. So I don't remember that specific issue, but I remember that's when it first really got on my radar. But it wasn't until that move to Texas that I really um, delved into it. And I think those first books I picked up were, were there was a couple of, like Sergeant Rocks and one of them was uh, Peter Parker, um, Spectacular Spider-Man. Um, yeah, it might be fun to, to track them down and to have them again. Uh, yeah. and, and I can't tell you exactly what it was that drew me in i think there was just i I was just primed for certain things like my mother always Mm -hmm. drew um and not not to get too deep or too much tmi stuff but but my mom had a drinking problem so she was she was a hardcore alcoholic and so for years she couldn't live with us while she was getting better Um, but she would write me letters and and she handled all that stuff she got through it we got back together it was great but she would write me letters and draw so that sense of like the my world was basically waiting for my mother you know waiting for her to get mm. better and i'd get these letters so there was something about drawing that was emotional to me that was that was very personal and then with the ufo and mythology kind of stuff you know and paranormal talk around the house all of these things primed themselves i think so that it made sense that comics called to me it was very genre laid and, and also very much you know like marvel's old what if comic mm-hmm. that's kind of the whole fringe field. Like, there's not many of us that say, this is the answer, this is exactly what it is, we know exactly what's going on. Most of this is, like, deep dive thought experiments. Well, what if? Like, Ancient Aliens was so great when it started, because it began with with Von Donekin's what if questions, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he wasn't like, aliens built a pyramid, these are landing strips for spaceships. He was saying, what if, right? Mm -hmm. And and they kind of lost their track on there. Now I, I meet people who will bring up ancient aliens, and he talk about it like it's history or a fact, and, and that's scary, right? It's um, so I think all that, what, yeah. that like what if question is what drives a lot of us, um, and not in, like mm-hmm. in a frivolous way, but it's like a what if, because there are these things that you can't explain. So what if it's this or what if it's that? Um, so I think all those things were primers for me to become a comic book artist and then to just be really entrenched in this UFO fringe paranormal world.
2: Wow, that's cool, man. There's There's so much that led up to what you're doing today and kind of, you know, the bulk of what we'll be talking about today, your interest in UFOs and how you've now brought that to life. But um, I got to ask you about a few of your projects before we get there. Again, my listeners, they're here for UFOs, but we'll get there, guys. (laughs) I promise. But I am here to talk to Michael, the comic book artist, first. And I saw that you worked on Highlander. I was... (laughs) the biggest closeted Highlander of the series fans dude. Like I would get the catalog. I'd order the swords, (laughs) you know, all the merch. And I would write, you know, little fanfics about Duncan and and living throughout the centuries, blah, blah, blah. So I got to ask, what was it like working on Highlander of all things, which I believe might be getting a resurgence soon. I could be wrong, but yeah. What was it like working with the, uh, the immortals?
0: I'm a huge Highlander fan. I love the first film, frustrated by all the other films. TV show yeah. was great. Um, or at least, you know, it had its moments. Um, uh, and, and working on the comic was it was interesting. Like, it really just came down to the covers for the most part. Um, it's a little insider-y baseball, but like, the people who, who own the, the copyrights, who, who own the property, aren't the same people who literally created it. So I think that's why you get a lot of the sort of mixed messaging stuff. Like, like they say that the television show is the same continuity as the first film. I, can't, I, <laughs> I don't understand how that works, right? But they insist on it, you know. So it made writing tricky and hard. Um, and in the end, I didn't, uh, you know. But I got to do a bunch of covers, and just living in that world was great. I got to draw both Duncan and um, Christopher Lambert's character. I'm forgetting Uh yeah, and I still love Highlander to this day. It's it's bizarre, it's strange, it's completely unique. You know, yeah. like, that's the stuff. For anybody you want to get into Highlander, I to, like, there's nothing else like it. There just, it just yeah. isn't. <laughs> and even yeah, where do you find... It, okay. Yeah.
2: Where do you yeah. find, like, a sci-fi fantasy kind of time travel esque. Yep. I can't really think of anything to be honest, unless you're yeah Yeah, router. So
0: because they they were smart enough to to not try and explain everything. That's oh, where right. it all falls apart, right? And the same thing right. with most of the things that we love, whether it's the Matrix or Star Wars, as soon as you start to get into Metachlorians or you have a KFC guy explaining to you everything, <laughs> it takes away that that magic. Whereas yeah. like in Highlander they would say it in the freaking song, it's a kind of magic and that's kind of all you needed. You know, just accept
2: it. Yeah. Doth protest too much if uh, (laughs) Shakespeare has taught us anything. Well, okay. So I love that insider kind of stuff of, you know, the different companies, the different uh, properties and whatnot. What is it like as an artist or a writer hopping from company to company, like whether it's Marvel or Mm. DC IDW, every, all of them, there's so many out there and I would imagine, you know, working at Marvel is a little different than working at like image comics, like in terms of like what liberties you have and stuff like that. So what is yeah. it kind of like a, a bipolar thing jumping from company to, co- how does that work? Like, I, I guess that's kind of yeah. my question. Does Marvel hire you to work on a property and that's it? Like you're just there for that property or yeah, maybe give demystify yeah. a little of that for me. If you don't mind, Michael, <laughs> all,
0: all the companies are fairly wildly different. You know, okay. uh, Marvel and DC are are huge company owned um, by company. I mean, mega corporations, you know, Disney owns Marvel, uh, Warner, Bro- Warner, Warner Brothers owns DC. Um, and they're great because they have all the classic characters, Superman, Spider-Man, Captain America and all that stuff. Um, and as a as a freelance artist, I like working for them because there's a guaranteed page rate up front. A page rate means how much you're paid per page that you draw, um, mm. versus um, creator own work is largely a, a royalty based payment. Meaning, if it does well, you'll get paid. You know, if it does well, you'll make money, and that could be anywhere from covering the cost of making it in the first place to to a profit. You know, but you don't know. It's such a it's such a, a roll of the dice. Even the best work that I've done, that's like creator own work might not be seen versus something that's kind of mediocre work for hire stuff gets seen by a lot of people and, and vice versa. There's no, there's no guarantees to any of it. There's no real, um, path to take. Um, mm-hmm. and as far as, you know, and I, and I actually, I enjoy working for all of them. I love work for hire stuff. I love doing like, we're doing a world of Krypton is my next, uh, work for hire thing. So it's the story of what happens to, to Krypton and Superman's world before it blows up. Oh wow, cool. Um, uh, and, you know, there are times I, I kind of look at it like, like film. This is a, a, a horrible analogy because it's a little whatever. Um, but, you know, you, you do a big blockbuster thing so that you can make your your indie films. You know, so, it's right. so comics are like that for me. Like I, I enjoy working for Marvel and DC for the purposes of working on those big characters. But it also helps signal boost the smaller stuff that I'm doing, um, like Project Blue Book or Galaxy Madness or any of that. Um, I'm also, as you can tell from the way that I speak. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a multitasker Probably because of some sense of, of ADHD, I'm not sure But I, I don't do one project At a time, I'm always working on several projects At once, some of them Like the one we just announced this week uh, Galaxy of Madness, which is a Patreon Comic, so you don't need to go to a comic book store you Go to Patreon, look up Galaxy of Madness And you'll go find it wait um, I forget the point it was <laughs>
2: Oh, no, just hop, I like you said, on multitasking, yeah.
0: I had started working on that um, with our partners, like, almost a year ago, maybe more, and I just work on stuff and let it build until I can release it. So sometimes it seems like I'm doing six things at once, but it's just because mm-hmm. I've got a backlog of work that I'm, I'm creating because I'm crazy by doing the work before knowing if I'm getting paid or not, you know? <laughs> it's, like, constantly for you. You're like, constantly writing spec scripts. Oh, my God,
2: Yeah no i totally well and that's such a good point and kind of you know shows the the industries overall of it's a lot of hurry up and waiting you know you'll you'll create the thing Um, and then it could sit there for 10 years you know i i've sold i've sold options and in screenplays to companies um years and years ago but it doesn't mean they're gonna make the movie they just own own the rights to make it which is nice like yeah, as a business person, it's great. Like I made yeah, my money, yeah. cool. But yeah, of course, as awesome. the they're they're great. But of course, we want to see these things come to fruition. But um, I would say in these businesses, more than not, they don't. So when you finally do get something made, it's all that more special. And I, I think you're right, sort of that street cred, you know, you mm. you, you do signal boost from these big companies to then yeah. show people your other work. That's how I found your work and many other comic book writers as well, your wife included. And um, I think that's really cool, like how, how you've navigated all of this and now you're working on a project that you're really passionate about when it comes to UFOs. Um, but we're almost there, I promise. We're going to get to Blue Book. Um, my last kind of comic booky industry question for you, Mike. Sure. Um, powers and uh, Bulletproof Monk. These were two mm. of your your creations that um, and things you worked on that came to life in different mediums. And i love to hear. Um, I just had one of my my first play adapted into a feature film. And it was awesome. I can tell you a it was an interesting experience. And uh, yeah. finally, it's going to see the light of day. Um, but that's ah, a story congrats, for buddy. another time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. But how was that for you? You know, when they came to you yeah. with these ideas and um, ad- adaptations, I know they're very challenging. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah How did those two projects come to be in terms of the TV show and the movie?
0: Um, Bulletproof Monk was interested as far as, like, me and this other writer, Brett Lewis, we helped create a product that was already kind of brought to us. Like, they had this idea of – um that the title, Bulletproof Monk, which was, like, awesome. Like, it was just – Yeah. Sometimes a title can sell itself, and they – this sounds so backwards, but sometimes it's how inspiration works. They had the title first, and then they talked to Brett about like, well, what what can this mean, you know? And I think they they had a vaguely martial artsy idea behind it, um, and then largely Brett uh, built it out through there. Um, and together we figured out the world and we drew the three issues of the comic. It was then optioned by John Wu, um, or not by John Wu. It was optioned by a company or whatever, and the John Wu was the the director on it. Um, and then the story that Bulletproof Monk became on screen really had nothing to do with the, the with the comic, or very little to do with the comic. It was it was largely reimagined, which happens uh, quite a bit. There's still some of the same set pieces, but but really it was just a very different thing. Um, mm-hmm. But it was still just really cool to see happen, um, and it was exciting. Um, then many, many, many years later, Powers, which is a comic that me and Brian Bendis had created back in like two thousand. Um, we've been doing that consistently for about 15 to 20, well, 20 years. We just wrapped it up with this big wow. graphic novel. Um, and yeah, we got options through Sony. And they were developing television shows to their PlayStation platform. So we were the first of this this these early streaming experiments. Um, we got two seasons out of it. We were very much involved. Uh, Brian was one of the, the head writers. But there was still a, like a lot of stuff that's either out of your control or um there's a goodwill between you and the studios and, and the writers that like as you know, like a a, a, a play is not a movie. Like there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of of crossover. The Venn diagram's almost a circle, but it's not. There, there are slight differences. And the same way yeah. with um, going from the comic book to the television show. So you have faith in your your financial partners and the studios to let it be the thing that it needs to be on its own. It doesn't need to be like sin city which was a great experiment where it's just literally the comic to a film right you know we wanted to grow to be its own and then sometimes the wheels will fall off and you kind of try to you know get back on top of that i think by the second season we 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 realized how much freedom how loose we were with our creation and then tightened it back up um the whole thing was a wild ride because you know it was life-changing it was this this extra level of career thing It was, um, but it was also experimental with the early streaming and it was on a specific physical platform that being PlayStation and stuff. So like, um, yeah, we got two seasons and it was awesome, but it's just, it's just a different world, you know, and and all of your expectations change and stuff. Um, and I've had a lot of ass kicking in Hollywood stuff where I've gotten the things options or we had negotiations for options that would go on for over a year and then it just doesn't come to fruition. And then you realize, well, I spent a year where three days a week you're on a phone with somebody talking about something that, that doesn't turn into anything. Mm-hmm. Um, which is great because then when other things come around. So at this point uh, I'm, I'm also optioning something that's fairly old. Um, and we're, we're in the middle of it right now. Um But I'm not thinking about it every day. I'm not sitting here going like, Oh my God, this is going to be another TV show. Who are they going to cast? Ooh, I wonder what this is going to be like. Because I've been on the roller coaster up and down so many times, like it's just like every little thing that happens, like we just got a, a showrunner or director attached to it. And it's like, right, I'll celebrate that. But I'm not <laughs> even thinking about, like, you know, yeah. is it going to air? What station? Who's going to star in it? Like, you just take every little step at a time. So, yeah, the, the, the upside to bad stuff is it helps center you out in different ways, you know?
2: Yeah, There's always absolutely. A great Exactly. It's a, It's always a learning process. I know for me, it's like until that contract is signed or, you know, they're saying action, like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. So I totally get it, man. Um, yeah, I can't well, wait to talk to right. you about that stuff out there, too. Yeah, for sure. I know. We'll have to do a whole other interview on that. <laughs> um, well, let's fast forward to today and one of the new projects you're working on. We'll get to the other one in later in the conversation, but is blue book now of course all of my listeners are very familiar with project blue book and we just had the television show um not too not too long ago and i actually have a question from the creator of the tv show uh uh what? exclusive question for you um oh, that he my... sent in um but we'll get there how did this come to uh-huh. be i i gotta ask how did project uh excuse me how did blue book Come to be. And, um, yeah, what made you guys decide you wanted to do this, your, your co-creative partner? And, uh, yeah, tell us a little about the team behind Blue Book, if you don't mind.
0: Okay. Um, so James Tinian uh, is, is a huge writer within comics. Um, he's been writing Batman for several years. He has a comic that I guarantee most of your viewers will want to get their hands on called The Department of Truth um yes. the concept behind it is it really is he figured out how to do a modern day x-files without doing any of the x-files imitation stuff or, or anything mm-hmm. um which is that basically and and you know we talk about this within our community that that belief enough belief can kind of create its own reality or create a reality almost a, a talpa like thing so mm-hmm. in his book if enough people start believing in something whether it's a conspiracy like jfk or bigfoot or ufos in those areas where, where these people are, are gathering and talking about these things these phenomena actually start to happen so there's literally a department within the government who decides what to stop and what to let go on it's called the department of truth um and it's a great comic it covers bigfoot ufo uh, stuff all of this and it's just amazing and just one day either i asked him if i could do a cover for him or he asked if i would do a cover and th- and I think just through being on Twitter and stuff, like he, he saw or knew my interest in UFOs and weird and weirdness. And then there's this large um, company called Substack, which is like a newsletter platform kind of thing. A lot of journalists are on it and stuff. And, and they basically decided that they wanted to do uh, comics um, th- through their platform and they have these grants. So they approached James about it. Um, <clears throat> And this was an opportunity to do a comic that you couldn't typically do in a comic book store. Uh, So like Project Blue Book is such, um, the way we wanted to do it anyway, which is to tell a very straightforward, as real as possible without adding any any speculation or any extra facts or anything like that. Just tell it as straightforward as possible. That'd be too hard of a sell in in mainstream comics. But on a platform like this, it would totally work. And it would totally work in the way that we both thought of in our head immediately, which is kind of black and white with this singular blue tone. Um, And that's how it started. It was just these weird opportunities that, you know, James uh, being offered a a grant that could pay for this kind of thing upfront so that like we know we'll make a living doing it versus everything else was a giant like gamble. Um, And we both, like James has the same interest as I do in this stuff and like immediately Within the first couple of sentences, we had the whole idea laid out. I had been wanting to do like sort of journalistic comics of UFO reports for a long time, um, and I just didn't know how to make it happen and stuff. And I kind of talked to Jimmy a little bit about it. Um, the, you know, there, there's some other people, some, some known people I was trying to talk to about it, but it's, it's hard. Um, mm. And anyway, it just it just created these circumstances where this could happen. So what we wanted to do is not all these stories are our blue books specifically but we're using blue book as like a theme and starting from there is like a it's it's sort of our lighthouse you know so there'll right, be non-blue right. book cases that are there but obviously this is the the atmosphere in which we're, we're, we're telling it and we we chose barney and betty hill to do first because it's one of the best stories it's your first modern day abduction stuff it's where we get a lot of our language from mm-hmm. um, about this subject and uh yeah we're going to tell the whole thing in about 80 pages it's uh, 20 pages every month, and um, yeah, I think that's I think that's the basics of it. Yeah, so we're gonna try cool. try and stick to the facts and just tell the story straightforward and in a compelling way.
2: Yeah, and again, that's what kind of sold me when I first heard about it was the accuracy in which you guys want to portray this because that's what we, you know, we hope and pray for in this field is accuracy yeah. and.
0: Credibility yeah.
2: and legitimacy, and you know, a lot of the the I wouldn't say hate, but the criticism of the History Channel television show was how off the rails it went in terms of accuracy and everything. And that's a whole other beast. Like yeah, I've yeah, been yeah. there with David O'Leary, the creator. I've had him on a few times. And when you're dealing with something like a huge
0: company at the helm, like
2: it's going to yeah. happen. And you know, I, if in- I
0: was them, I would have approached it the yeah. same way. It's television. Right. You know, because otherwise it, it's yeah. a documentary. You
2: know, exactly. It's, it's, that's what I tried to stress. And, and there's percent. nothing wrong
0: with that. That's great, too. But it's a different path. It's kind of yep. like in comics. You know, whenever we, we we announce something that's digital, people immediately like, well, when is it coming to print? It's like, well, one thing at a time. You know, like there are different <laughs> things, you know, and, and a documentary is different than, um, you know, like I don't know how interesting Blue Book could be straightforward. Um, right. It, it could be done. Um I'm, I'm not sure narratively how you really carry that out, but that's a whole other yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, and then,
2: <laughs> you know, there's always an entertainment aspect to all of this. Like that's, yeah. it's how you engage an audience to then educate them on something. Yeah. And I think you guys did. Uh, I've read the first two chapters that uh, you sent to me. You were so Nice enough to uh, send. And um, you you can see a little bit of your art in the background here on the YouTube version (sighs) of our show. But um, that's not doing any justice. It's beautiful, man. Like this this sort of, um, you know, uh, limited colors and um, just the style. It reminded me somewhat of your work with Dick Tracy in some respects as well. Um, But tell me a little about how you decided to go with this style, which I think is spot on for something like project blue book, what made you want to go with, with what you did and maybe, yeah. Tell us a little about the style, if you don't mind.
0: Um, so as you can tell, I'm wearing Coke bottles on my face right now, these giant glasses where my eyes look huge uh, <laughs> it's because as I've gotten older, like, you know, uh, sitting over the desk like that has taken its toll on me, you know? Sure, so yeah. most of the work that i've done in the past i know four years has mostly been digital which means i'm working on a computer screen where i can get in there and i can control the lines 120 percent 100 and um the, the line work is much finer and stuff um but i miss drawing what's called analog and that's just pen paper and brush you know and you get chunkier lines out of it you're the, the it's just a slightly different quality the closest I could explain it is like, if you're an audio person, you can tell the difference between something that's digital and something that's on an album or something, you know. Um, so I was really, really hungry to do something analog again. And this was a perfect opportunity because, you know, it wouldn't involve too many crowd scenes, which is a lot of people, a lot of detail, or like fight scenes of people jumping off of exploding buildings and the ridiculousness that we get to do in comics. It usually takes a lot of detail and intense lines. Um, but it should tell here, the kind of stories we're going to be telling they're they're largely character based people talking, people driving, people eating people pointing at the sky and stuff. Um, <laughs> right. So it becomes pure storytelling, you know, and I almost look at it. Like I try to tell each page, can you kind of tell what's going on or come to your own conclusions about what's going on without the dialogue, um, mm. which in these stories where you're, you have got the first chapters, it's largely Betty and Barney just driving. And pulling over, <laughs> you know, and looking at this crazy thing. So I had to come up with a language. Like, well, how do I make this interesting? Um, because we don't want to add stuff. We didn't turn want to turn the, the 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 car chase scene from the UFO into a chase scene. You know, where s- tires are squealing around corners and stuff like that. But I still was was figuring out how do I tell that in, a, in an interesting way. So there's a lot of angular shots, looking through um, branches at their cars. They're driving. There's a lot of reflections of the UFO on the car, but not seeing the car itself. Like, so what visual language could I use to show that they're being stalked kind of? That was the feeling that, that, that Barney specifically had, um, that they were being stalked and, and hunted. Um, so the, those are the choices that I'm making, as well as realizing that the platform is largely for non-comic book readers. Like I'm be very happy for all of my 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 readers to follow Blue Book and James's readers to find follow Blue Book, but we want is your audience to read it. You know, we want Jimmy's audience. We want the UFO community to read it. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm specifically and James and our editor Greg and our letterer, um, we're all um, Aditya. We're all uh, trying to tell this in a way for people who don't read comics. So there's not a lot of crazy panel layouts. I'm keeping it super simple so nobody gets lost um, and the, the, those are the compasses that we're that we're taking, and the style just comes from again getting to go back to my, my roots of like just plopping down thick, chunky brush lines for noir scenes, and like using the idea of 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 noir and horror lighting to emphasize the the, the scariness and the emotional heights that these characters are going through. Um, and then that's that's a compass, and it like really the whole thing is just stripped down to its most basic, bare essential stuff. Um, and that's making it for a better creative experience. And and I think for probably for a better reading experience too.
2: Yeah. Sometimes is better, less is
0: more. <laughs> less is more always, man. Yeah. If there's anything <laughs> I've learned
2: in writing as well, especially for, for movies, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. what is the saying? It's it's showing, not telling, which yeah. as a playwright, my job was always the opposite. <laughs> it's telling and not showing. So it was, yeah. it's, it's hard. And and like you said, like, this isn't, you know, hopefully, a lot of the followers of your work will come over to Blue Book, but it's it's made, you know, as an homage to uh, the people who worked on Blue Book for a community yeah. who's been made fun of their whole lives for believing in this stuff, and just now mm-hmm. in twenty twenty one is getting, you know, the legitimacy it finally deserves. But um, I, that's I think absolutely- that's.
0: That's yes, constantly going go through my mind as, as I'm drawing them. Betty and Barney Hill were, were real people, you know, wow. and often when we, even when we talk about it on like podcasts and stuff, you kind of, I don't want to say forget, but like, yeah, you do forget the real, real people. So like the things that they were going through, um, who they were at the time, how they were formed as a as as a woman and a black man in the 60s, that means they grew up in the 40s, right. you know. So you take all of this stuff into, into account and when you when you once you read the the books about them and you know they're, they they had two different sort of directions for this Betty well I don't think she was I don't believe she manufactured anything I don't believe she exaggerated anything but as this started to happen to her she was open to it she was open to the experience um, she was kind of excited about the experience I think her she had a a, a huge mountain level of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Barney wanted it all to end immediately. Right. You know the the book captured is called captured because when he saw the ship that he thought was coming near him, he's running to his wife, yelling, "They're going to capture us!" Now, to to say those words, like those those are specific words. It's not run, Betty. It's not we got to get out of here. They're going to capture us. There, there's a psychological underlining there. That you, as a writer, I bet, like you would write it. Not every character would say that. Specific characters would say that for specific reasons. So, like Barney was tortured by this whole thing. So there's a huge. I feel a huge responsibility as I'm drawing this to um, protect Barney so that he doesn't come off like um, like he's trying to be labeled. And a lot of those um, uh, psychologists and people at the time tried to say basically that he was mentally inferior to, to Betty and that Benny was influencing him through his dreams or her dreams to believe the same thing that she, like it's so insulting, it's so demeaning. And the way she was also like, the the, the questions that the therapists were asking of them were so insulting uh, to anybody. Um, it was brutal, yeah. It's a lot that they went through. So the, I'm carrying a lot of that w- when I'm drawing it. Um, and it also helps that like Betty just looks like my my aunt, somebody who helped raise me. So like when I'm dressing her, when I don't have reference, I'm thinking of the same kind of clothing. So the same kind of, she had the same, that, I hate to put this, there was like this failed perm thing that, that <laughs> was going on for yeah. from like the 40s to like the, the early 80s. And my <laughs> aunt had the same hair, right? So like it's it's this wonderful thing where like I'm connecting to them as people and I'm connecting them through my own experiences of families as I'm drawing them. Um, I'm not sure where that was all going, but I mean, no, that, that's, that's why I'm I... dealing a lot of this
2: Right. And I love hearing that, man, because like my my, I guess, role in the UFO field is I focus on the people who have experiences, yeah. not how big was the craft? Like what time like? Yeah, that's cool. Data is great. It's great for investigators. It's great for these like military dudes who are trying to assess what's going on. But yeah. for me, it's always come back to the Bettys and the Barneys. Like, what did you experience how did because it's different for everyone i i yeah. had a case that i personally went out to investigate in michigan where a um i had a mother and daughter they both saw a triangular ufo above their home and they had completely different experiences man the the mother mm-hmm. said it was silent and it was black the daughter said it was unbearably loud she was like covering her ears and the craft was white so you're just like Every person is going to experience these things differently. And I think that's it's so cool that you picked up on that with what what Barney Hill said, we're gonna be captured. Whereas she was probably like, Oh, let's do this, like this is gonna be a <laughs> crazy learning experience. She was on the craft, like asking the aliens questions, stuff like that. Yeah. And meanwhile, like yeah, sure Barney's effing terrified if you listen to those regression yeah. tapes.
1: Yes, go on, he's telling you, and he's looking at me. What did he tell you? Stay there and keep looking. Just keep looking and stay there. And just keep looking. Yeah. Just keep looking. Could you hear him tell you? Oh, i got to pull these binoculars away from my eyes. Because <laughs> if I don't, I'll just keep staying there. Could you hear him tell you this? Oh, no. He didn't say it. You felt he said it. I it? know you know he's Just does. there, yeah. Just stay there, he's saying to me. All right. I'll take it in my head. Just All don't right. Pull All the binoculars right. away. God, give me strength. All right. All pull him right. down. Run! Pull the binoculars down. And run. God! It says, my God, give me strength. i got to get away. Oh... Oh, I right, right. gotta get away, baby All right, Ooh. calm down. Calm down. I'm gonna get away.
2: Oh. I can't even imagine what that ha- would have done to their relationship with this mother and daughter she, in Michigan. Man,
0: tear them apart.
2: Long. So, yeah, yeah. And yeah, he didn't so live so I can't long. even imagine.
0: He died in his like early forties, or early or mid forties, yeah. something like that. You know. Um, And I'm convinced like that story about my, my, my aunt and mom, when they saw something, um, that emotional thing that my, my aunt reacted to, I think that's what hooked me into these things. So Mm -hmm. I've never had an experience and my wife and I, we've actively gone out. We've been to Joshua tree for contacting desert the first year and we'll go (laughs) stargazing, hope we'll see something. We've never seen anything, but the people that I've talked to, there are people in my life who I trust. I would trust with my life who have seen things. That's why I'm still here. Like, there, as far as I'm concerned, there's no smoking gun, right? For, for me mm-hmm. anyway. But there are people's experiences who like, why would they lie about this? There are some people who would lie or some people who are, um, there's all sorts of reasons, right? But we all know people in our lives who just wouldn't make something like that up. Right. So whatever it is, people are experiencing something, people I trust. And that's why I'm still here is, is there is that, that human aspect of it. Because unfortunately, yeah. like we were talking about, That mother and daughter having completely different experiences. The older I get, the more I think that this is less a physical, predictable thing, and maybe that's part of it. But there seems to be Mm -hmm. some sort of consciousness thing. I don't know, you know. And I want to get, I, you know, you you just get into such speculation land there. But there, more and more, it seems to be something along those lines, as opposed to specifically zeta reticuli people coming in a nuts and bolts ship or something, which may also be happening. (laughs) <laughs> right
2: it might be one small sliver of the yeah. overall picture i'm I'm with you man like yeah we're kind of living in an age now of um you know i guess a new age as the kind of new age movement would say of this yeah. having a lot more to do with consciousness it's a road that i've kind of tippy-toed on but i haven't like gone I, down the road I, I yet but
0: a good friend yeah. of mine um he has a a, a christian background and like so he's always seen the ufo community uh the ufo phenomena as you know this larger spiritual thing you know and i always pushed against that and like i was like no these are like aliens or something or whatever and well like i don't see eye to eye exactly on that point of view the venn diagram is almost the same like i'm kind of thinking that these are more like ultra dimensional creatures or ultra dimensional experiences rather than uh, so much physical from another planet over or another star system and when you think about that like those are just sort of metaphors like angels and demons versus you know uh,
1: yeah
0: ultra you know uh, dimensional beings who have different motivations you know um it's sort of just your, your point of view like i fought against that for the longest time and now I, i'm like well why is it when people have uh ufo experiences they start having paranormal experiences afterwards you know, yep. part of the, the parts of the Betty Barney Hill stories, it's not reported often is that poltergeist activity after the um, their encounters and then people helping them investigate their encounters also started getting uh, those tag along uh, um, phenomenon that's been happening. Like you, you get with like Skinwalker ranch is probably the most, you know, extreme example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but why is that happening? You know, you know, those should be two different things. Parent, like, like, Poltergeist activity and UFO activity shouldn't <laughs> have to follow each other, but they seem to. So, right,
2: that's such I, a know. good point. I think you know, um, and we're we're hearing that more and more. This mother and daughter had the same experience: poltergeist activity after oh, really? to a UFO go. event. Their electricity was on the fritz. An electrician came out to fix it. He sees a UFO over the house. Like, dude, <laughs> it's crazy. Like, wow. um, I gotta get you. I gotta get you that case for a yeah um, for a later later uh, one for blue book but you're you're right i think when you're dealing with such amorphous phenomena like everyone's gonna kind of bend it and mold it to their own whatever spiritual Mm -hmm. lens or psychological lens what what have you and that's why when anyone ever comes to me and says do you believe in ufos i'm like it's belief is immediately going down religion territory and that's not sure. what this is about for me like i yeah. i want to hear the stories i'm compelled by the stories the way people interpret things um and then others just want the facts ma'am like i i totally yeah. get that but when you bring belief into it that's that's tough cuz then you're dealing with religion, and so many people have come to me, man, and been like, it's demonic, it's angelic, it's u- yeah, ultra-dimensional, yeah. like you mentioned. So who knows? Yeah. Who really yeah. knows? But I think that's what kind of keeps us going, is asking yeah. those Marvel those Marvel what-ifs, right?
0: Yeah, it's we keep asking the what-ifs because there's all these, like, touchstones to real, actual things, you know, yeah. to, to people we trust or documents we've seen or something, and it's like, you know, there's a reason Somebody's we keep asking yeah.
2: yeah. Thanks, Jacques Valet. He ruined everything. Seriously. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's um, uh, let's. I guess let's um, go back to Blue Book in terms of what you guys are covering. You mentioned Betty and Barney Hill. Eighty pages. Yeah. That's that is awesome. First of all, I can't wait to see where you know your whole arc goes with that. What's up, guys? Ryan dropping in to wish you all a very happy Halloween season. And what better way to celebrate? Than with Jim Harold's Campfire podcast. With over 500 episodes of Campfire, you'll hear stories that will bend your reality and leave you truly spooked. The concept is pretty simple Jim talks to regular folks about strange stuff that happens to them. And yes, that includes UFOs and UAPs, along with cryptids and, of course, ghosts. Now, not all the stories are horrifying. Some are pretty heartwarming, like a visit from a past loved one or a peaceful near-death experience. Regardless, they are true and fascinating stories, as told by ordinary people who've had extraordinary experiences. So, pull up a log and tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Somewhere in the Skies. And remember, stay spooky. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. David O'Leary, like I mentioned, the creator of the Project Blue Book series, he wanted to know, because for him with the TV show, it was a big challenge. Cause you're dealing with like um, you know, a chronological program that actually existed that investigated UFOs. But they had to tell a story. They had to create yeah. an arc. So sometimes they took a case from 1950 and one from 1960, and they ran yeah. in tandem, you know, chronologically on the show. Um, so he wants to know, what, um, how did you guys decide to start with Betty and Barney Hill, and um, how are you going to go about what you're going to focus on moving forward? I know it's still really early in the creative process sure. for you guys, but, um, really? yeah, he wants to know, like, what are you going to – what made you want to focus on certain things?
0: Uh, well, first, I'd like to thank David just for asking a question. You know, uh, when the fir- when the show first came out, I even did a drawing of um, I'm forgetting the actor's name who was playing Heineck. Uh, I Uh a picture of him holding a flashlight and posted it out nice. to us for the creators because was, I was just excited. Um, I, uh, I oh, loved- I
2: should mention I made this shirt. <laughs>
0: <me>. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I was, was hiding right, the whole yeah. the whole
2: interview. Yeah, dude, this is my. <laughs> My highest selling t-shirt in my shop. Um, oh, brilliant. So I've got David to thank and pretty soon I have you guys to thank as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I also yeah, just no sorry the, to interrupt. The production quality of the show. Like it was just oh, great dude. to watch. Um, and I think that the mixing and matching of history like that was a perfect way to do it because you know, what while, while, you know some of us might get like, oh, oh, oh that's not the order we have to remember this is more for people who aren't into this than it actually is for us who are right. And it's, and it, and that becomes a doorway for people to go like, what? There was this like owl looking thing in the woods after this UFO crash. And then they'll start looking into stuff. And then, you know, like Richard Dolan got into this cause he was looking at historical documents and like military spending. That's what got him in, into this. So why not a TV hmm. show? Um, so anyway, uh, with Betty and Barney Hill, we decided first with that because it is the, you know sort of pinnacle of like where all of this started all of our language came from it our, our first experiences talking about it it's not really cha- that, that narrative hasn't changed wildly since then mm-hmm. um and, th- and that was sort of the reasons and it's just bulletproof case you know why why would they make this up the 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 claims that they wanted to make up a story just don't make sense uh one from a safety point of view when you're in the 1960s early 1960s uh uh, a mixed couple, um, working with, uh, social workers and double And so you're just a target for bad shit to happen. You know, you don't right. want to put yourself out there. Barney could have lost his job. Who wants to trust a mailman who sees aliens, you know, um, Betty could have lost her work because of the same stuff. So even talking about this and then what did they get out of it? They got like a book deal and the book deal. Like I, I think I was reading about it in one of the books later, like, yeah, they made some money off it, but it wasn't life-changing money. They got, like, new furniture. They made sure that the writers uh, who helped them write the book was also part of the, the finances of the television show that got made later, the film. You know, so, like, it wasn't, like, a cash cow for them in any way. Um, there's no reasons for them to make any of it up. So these were the, some of the reasons why, like, this was the place to start, kind of where the, the real history of it begins. And this is just this great case. Um, and there's a stuff like the star thing, you know, her figuring out the the, the constellation yeah, before star it's... map. Yeah, um, and then you know, so 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 that'll be our first big statement about it. The next story or two are going to be shorter, uh, and so you know that way we can cover some other stuff really quickly before we go on to a third or fourth story that'll also be really big. This way, you get this huge meal now. Okay, these little meals later, and then another big meal. <laughs> um and we haven't decided specifically which cases but you know there's giant ones we'll definitely do Rendlesham. you know um we'll we'll definitely do like a travis walton uh, maybe get to talk to him um there there's so many great Ooh. cases the um it, yeah so there's there's a lot to cover and they won't all be specifically blue book but they'll be around this this subject awesome
2: man i hey Anytime <laughs> anyone puts Rendlesham into anything, I'm happy. That's probably yeah. my my favorite case personally. I've um, I wrote a play about it. Actually, I'll have oh, to share hell. that with you.
0: Hell
2: yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I was working on a screenplay, um, which is still in the works. But you know how all that goes. Things yeah. get shelved. Blah blah blah. Well, but um, well,
0: it's also a, another bulletproof case. I mean, when yeah. you have government files saying that that John, forgetting his last name, had health firms, problems. Yeah specifically because he was exposed to was did they use the term uap or they used some other term that they that,
2: they i believe what they said was radiation caused by a ufo or craft of unknown origin yeah, They used a been term their, that, that didn't yeah. say
0: exactly what it was but through other terminology on, that's yeah. what it meant right <laughs> yeah. and and like to to get his medical records and to have that on there like okay, so that came from a lighthouse that he confused for a freaking lighthouse, you know? Right. They're mil- right. They're the, that recording, uh, you know, of walking up to this object, I mean, it, and, and you know, there's so much work for military people. Oh, this is yep. all amazing stuff.
2: Yep, exactly, exactly. Well, that that's my next question for you. What are some of your favorite cases in UFO lore? Um, any ones really stand out to you or um, ones you find most compelling?
0: It just it keeps changing over the years. Um, yeah, you know, uh, one of the things I'll say is is there are patterns that happen in our community. You know, whether it's like right now the that that the the stance of was it the Air Force or Department of Defense, like literally saying there are things in our sky that we're not sure what they are, and like a lot of us are going around circles. Like they finally said something like that. It wasn't much. It wasn't as much as we wanted but they have said something, but they mm-hmm. said this before. This is all that, that mm-hmm. we've been through all of this before. After blue book, there were several other projects and they all ended up saying the same stuff, you know, that, yeah, the government's already said that there's stuff in the sky and there's a small percentage they can't figure out, you know, like, so none of this is new. So, and, and then often things just take time for truth to come out about it. So there's a time test that has to go. So all of this stuff happening now with the UAP stuff and, um, the videos, I don't think we'll really know much about it for another 10 years. Like, we need time for things to, to sit in it. The, the way the alien autopsy film um, developed over the years, the way Area 51 stories developed over the years, um, mm-hmm. the Anacama, comma uh, I'm saying that. Oh, right. yeah, the, the little, little, little skeleton, skeleton guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't get excited about any of that. Not to just throw it off immediately, but it's like you just wait, wait. <laughs> These things yeah. have have a life of their own. They have to. So that's a long way of saying it's hard to meet it. Like my favorite story in the past is not my favorite story now. Gotcha. Um, and, and now it is all that Jack Vale stuff. Like things are just too weird and and per. Like the experiences that people are having with UFOs and alien contact are so inconsistent. Um. Even with even to that person that it's happening to, it just seems like it's it's more of a force in the universe that is messing with us. Like, it, like even to just yeah. mess with you to question why you keep pursuing this thing and it'll drive you nuts. You know, like it's it's a maze with no end. Um, and it seems yeah. to be designed that way. I um, mean, maybe that's just an extra layer of parano- paranoia that I have, but every time I hear these stories, they don't really ever go anywhere. You know, people yeah. who have direct contact who clearly aren't making stuff up, like some people are clearly making stuff up, um, it still just doesn't make sense. The end game never makes sense. Look at all the alien abduction stories we had about genetics in, in the 80s and 90s. And weren't we all convinced that that's why um, abductions were happening? Abductions were happening because they were, they're, they're cloning technology or that they're living so long that their DNA isn't like working anymore. So they were taking us to do experiments to figure themselves out more. But now what we know about DNA, like if I want your DNA, dude, I don't have to kidnap you and, and put you in a van and, and like <laughs> jam you with all kinds of stuff. I just go in your apartment right. when you're gone and I get your DNA. I could freaking clone you, you know. Yeah. So, Good point, so yeah. now all of a sudden I look back and I'm like, like I trust Whitley Strieber's story, but why does it why would they need to take DNA from him physically mm-hmm. or anybody? Yeah. And he's come to the same conclusion too. Like as I listened to him once or twice, as he's gotten older. He's gone to, it's all Jack Valet territory, you know? Um, And he used to be very nuts and bolts. They all go there. The longer you're around this, the less nuts and bolts it feels. And the more it feels like, like my armchair theory, not one that I'm married to or believe is happening, but like a, a maybe is that this is something like, if you take a, it's just stuff we don't know. It's, it's, it could be very scientific. It could be like, this is a combination of some, something to do with our consciousness and magnetic waves that feedback, like a biofeedback thing, but into our minds mm. instead of our body, you mm-hmm. know, like I know how fruity that sounds, but like I, you know, it makes as much sense as anything else, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. And if, it's just yeah, as viable,
2: so, man, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, man,
2: we could take this in so many different Ways. But I think what it really boils down to is you're right. There's a a tricksterish nature to oh, all of sure. this that like whatever the phenomena is or represents, where it comes from, when it comes from, um, yeah. it's messing with us. It's like some big performance art piece. I yeah. kind of look at it as like, what it feels I, like. Yeah. Never maybe bit, like, that's the playwright coming out in me, but I don't know. <laughs> but I, I do feel like this is some big art project, um yeah. just kind of being played out to see how we react and stuff. But that's scary too. Cause you're having these UFO events where like they're being o- seen over nuclear bases and yeah, stuff yeah. like that, or like pilots chasing after them and, and then, yeah. some even crashing at times and dying. So like there, yeah. there, there is a stake to it, even if it is just messing with us. Like, look at the tick yeah, thing. Like, and I don't, what if they had actual weapons during that, man, that's the stuff oh, that kind of scares
0: yeah. me. Yeah, and I don't discount the physical craft stuff as a possibility yeah. too, or maybe that's in there in the mix. I, I also think it makes a lot of sense that maybe the TikTok stuff that we're seeing, like I, the idea that it's us in the future coming back to look at ourselves statistically makes more sense than aliens or some consciousness thing that we don't know because you only need to really make one supposition. It's that we don't blow ourselves up for the next 5,000 years and we keep going, uh, our, our scientific knowledge slowly gets higher and higher we would get to the point where we could send something back in time to to look at ourselves so that's makes that's easier to handle than than anything else i i don't know that that's what's happening at all you know um but again there's things that point to it that that makes sense but then there's all these other things that that don't make sense you know the consciousness the calling (laughs) of ufos through your consciousness like i'm not saying that doesn't happen I you know I think some people are having that happen but that just brings out a lot more questions a lot yep, more questions I know
2: it's you. just when we think we're we found one answer like something sets it back another 50 questions and that's kind of again yeah the frustrating thing in ufology so I'm with the man hey us from the future I'm all about it that's kind of where I'm at right now yeah, exactly. where I'm leaning towards I think it's yeah. pretty cool like if there's anything to that um I kind of hope that's what it is to be completely honest and I hope, yeah, we, listen and I hope we listen so to our future selves yeah we made, it. Yeah. made yeah. it somehow yeah. um, but how close of a call is it is you know kind of my sure. question but um yeah. well I I guess kind of bringing it back um back down to earth I can't believe I just said that on my own show um, <laughs> anyways michael um paranoia you you brought that mm. word up and that's kind yeah. of a big thing it's always been there in this conspiracy theory kind of culture of ufology but today it's just like a whole other beast um in america specifically but all over the world as well and we do we live in an age of conspiracy theory now fake news every other buzzword you can think of but um what i find interesting is when blue book was first around in the air force and whatnot we're trying to you know stamp down the, the the hysteria of UFOs invading the country and we can't stop it and and kind of downplaying the phenomena with, with Blue Book. I mean, there's no yeah. denying that was kind of what it was yeah. created for. Um, that was an age of paranoia. You're talking like the early years of the Cold War and everything. And now we live in the probably worst conspiracy theory culture we've ever experienced, And we're also getting these huge UFO stories and the government getting involved and kind of creating a new Project Blue Book in some ways. So what do you make of this whole paranoia world we live in? And um, how does that reflect on the UFO community for you as someone who's, you know, you've always been into the topic, obviously, but now creating Blue Book, you are all in, man. Like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we're dragging you all in. Um, yeah, what do yeah. you make of all that? What do you make of all of that huge well, broad question I
0: asked. So skipping the social media world issues of conspiracy, mm-hmm. like let's just look at our own community. Um, okay. I had just finished listening to the Dolan's book, The UFO State, you know, um, mm-hmm. and there's just tons and tons of ex- of examples of purposely fed misinformation for all kinds of reasons um, throughout history. And then we know through like that that great documentary, Mirage Men um or mirrorman. Mm. Yeah. Um
2: Mirage Man, you're right.
0: Yeah. About the CIA using the UFO community as a cover for real um secret projects. A combination of those two, like it's just difficult. Like and I'm not somebody who just distrusts, but always in the back of my head there's a caveat that most that so much of this could just be lies. Um, and that lies like maliciously. Um, like another armchair theory that I have about what's going on right now with UAP stuff and, and this disclosure, seemingly. Um, and maybe you could ask Richard this, or, or you have an opinion. Um, I think it may be this is just a, a, a kind of a coup within the government to not, it's the wrong word, I wanna use coup. Uh, that within the government, there are people who are just sick of the clearances and, and the, the top secret stuff that they don't have access to because it's been shelled out to private companies. Imagine being, mm. you know, we've heard the stories of, of in the UFO community of different people of different ranks who have looked to get explanations from people that they outranked and were told that you don't have access to that. Right. So I imagine at a certain point, this builds where it's not just UFO stuff, but there's, I bet there's like components to I don't know military stuff, you know, uh there's files mm-hmm. that aren't directly attached to UFOs but are tangentially attached to UFOs that people can't get access to anymore because of programs that are hidden within programs especially once they go out into the civilian world. So, all of that means I have a, a I have a decent suspicion, maybe like a 30% suspicion that all of this is really about clearances behind the scenes that in order to to get rid of this problem you have to kind of decimate it so they put out um all of this information so that it becomes more of an open book kind of for good reasons because you know people want access to the stuff that's gone private so i, yeah. I i'm suspecting that a lot of this is is about that and Lou elizondo who i i actually take at face value but he'll tell you this was his job was part of it was was co tell stuff and um what a great way to do it you you take somebody from the inside, you put them as a face to say, um, you know, this is what's going on within the government. This is real and stuff. And I want to help disclose it, but secretly it's, it's really has to do with something else. Um, And you would take somebody like Lou who, and again, I take him at face value. I'd like, I'd like listening to him and I actually trust him. But as a caveat, there's always a possibility. He's still just doing his job and he's really good at it. because He can talk to you very much like on a human level, very much on a, um, a very contrite and, and, and trace the wrong word, uh, he's just being honest. He comes off very yeah. honest.
2: Right.
0: The, the, the most honest sounding people could be trained in sounding honest, you know? And again, like <laughs> yeah. I, I take him as face value. I, I, I think this is all positive stuff going forward, but in the back of my head, I, I am afraid of the disinformation stuff that here we go again, we're, we're, we're going to kick the football and you know, she's just waiting to yank it away from us. <laughs> um, Damn it, Lucy. Yeah, so it's kind of a conspiracy theory that, yeah, maybe this is just more disinformation for a mundane reason, which is usually why crazy stuff happens, it seems like. There's a mundane reason that, you know, somebody got fired or somebody got promoted or some law was passed and it's just because somebody has a connection to something. And it really has nothing to do with anything people care about on a visceral level. So maybe it's just about clearances and just trying to, like, bring down that house of cards so they can, you know – you have access to files and stuff. I, I'm not sure. Yeah,
2: I that's such a good um theory because we know, like Elizondo said, um, Christopher Mellon, the former, I believe, deputy secretary for intelligence or the senate intelligence committee. I, I, they have so many letters in front of their names and everything, dude. I get yeah. them all mixed up, but they they both have said, like, we we tried to get information and we couldn't and we were in charge of these things and we should have had the information, but there's so much black budget wild West sort of stuff going on in the government um, where you have no idea where those millions of dollars went, who's working on what. So I think you're right. It it could be a way to kind of stamp that down and be like, Hey, remember, like, remember who you guys work for the public. So first of all, they need to be made aware of certain things to an extent. Like I understand sure. national security and everything, oh, but yeah. also like we are the government, we have Congress, you answer to us. So um, yeah. if you're working on some back engineered alien craft, we we need to know about it. Uh, so who knows the theories could could go in many different ways, but yeah, I think I kinda, you're right. Like, there seems to be like a kind of a new cold war of like, counterintelligence going on with all this. Definitely. How we're and why, why talking there be? about it to other nations and stuff like that. Sorry, yeah. go. Yeah, please.
0: I was just saying, why, why wouldn't there be? You know, and We know yeah. through history that this is how it's worked. Like We would lie about, lie, lie is the wrong word in, in these certain circumstances, but like, back in the 80s when we were talking about uh, the Star Wars program that we had basically this sort of laser proof dome on top of the United States that no amount of missiles can get through, so supposedly then the Russians just ramped up the amount of, of missiles they're making to the point that it like helped bankrupt them, you know, and that was basically this disinformation. Um, one of my other favorite authors, Amy Jacobson, like her her book about UFOs, um, mm. she got fed a story. Well, I don't want to say fed because I don't know anything. But, you know, her story was that Roswell, she was being told by people from the inside that it was basically disinformation from the Russians who dropped off, a crashed something. You know the story that they crashed up there. It was all disinformation to get us. right into this thing that could just well be, you know, double disinformation or something. I I don't know, but it's an example of what goes on through history. we know like this information is real. It's a, it's a real tool that's being used. So why wouldn't it be used now? And it seems like we consistently kind of fall for the same football, you know? Um, So a lot of it is a waiting game. Um, So like I'm trusting Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon. Like, I think, I think they're on the up and up. You know, but but I do reserve the fact that yeah maybe you know maybe I'm lining up for the football game.
2: That's right, man. Yeah, keep uh, keep one cleat you know on the field and yeah. one off, and yeah. see what happens. I love that. One sneaker <laughs> um, on. Yeah, yeah. I did, one thing I didn't think we would talk about was Charlie Brown. So I'm impressed. We did. <laughs> um, Okay. Well, I've got just a couple of listener questions for you, Mike. You're, you've been very gracious with your time, so I um. I don't want to keep you too long, but you mentioned Area 51. Now, I know you guys talked about this on Jimmy Church, but I got (laughs) to get your opinion on what is this story about this Marvel comic book writer who may have been the quote-unquote Area 51 caller, the famous Area 51 caller on RBL. Do you know any, like, is this something you're familiar I'm, with I'm it? I'm slightly
0: familiar with it, yeah okay. uh, so I'm like Would you mind friend.
2: giving us the yeah the Cliff Notes version?
0: <laughs> sure So there's this this phone call that was made to, to, to Art Bell back in the 90s called the the Frantic Area 51 Caller mm-hmm. um, and it's become part of your full lore and legend and um, it started out it's like you know, Art would have these open line things, right? If you're a vampire, call in blah blah blah, blah. and if you're a time traveler call in blah blah blah, blah you know and he had one open for area 51. If you were your former employee of area 51 call it and, you know, you know, it's fun. Um, maybe there's something real being said, you know, but chances are it's just speculation and fun. Um, and we were working on a, a science fiction comic called ship of fools, which had to do with, it was a science fiction book, but I also wrote in conspiracy stuff and interdimensional IRS agents and stuff and the Illuminati and, um, Brian decided to call.
1: 51 Line, you're on the air. Hello. Hello, Art. Yes. Hi. Um, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, time. Um, well, look, look, let's begin yeah. by finding out whether you're using this line properly or not. Uh, area 51. Yeah, um, that's right. Were you an employee or are you now? I, I a former employee. Former um, employee. I, I, I was let go on a medical discharge about a week ago, and... and I, I've kind of been running across the country. Um, oh man, I don't know where to start. They're uh, they're, they're going to um, they'll triangulate on this position really, really soon. So um, you can't spend a lot of time on the phone. So give us t- something quick. Okay. Um. Um. Okay. What what we're thinking of as as aliens are they're uh, they're they're extra dimensional beings that an earlier precursor of the um space program made contact with uh they they are not what they claim to be uh they have infiltrated a lot of uh a, a lot of aspects of 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 the military establishment particularly the area 51 uh the, the disasters that are coming they the, the military I'm sorry. The government knows about them, and there's a lot of safe areas in this world that they could begin moving the population to now. Art, but well, they're not doing. They're not doing anything. They are not. They want the major population centers wiped out,
0: so that the, the few that are left will be more easily controllable. And then he had all this stuff set up, and he was gonna knock it all over and pretend like you know he was being like arrested or, or caught or whatever. Um, and as he's getting to this, and and then and this is the most important part, he would say, oh, "I'm just, I'm just playing with your art, you know. I'm I'm just a fan, and he that this was theater, you know. This is theater. It was always intended to be that." But as he's going on, he's saying stuff like, you know, there's these d- disasters coming and the government knows where safe areas are. And the aliens aren't what they seem and they're not doing anything. As he's saying this stuff, uh, the uh, art loses contact with the satellite or something like something not normal for going off the air. It was like the actual satellite link or something crazy. <laughs> and like, I don't think it was art looking for an opportunity to, to make something happen uh, because it was off air for like 10 minutes or something. Like a really long time, like death right. to, a, to a DJ, death to a radio show is ratings. Right, you can't go silent. Maybe 30 seconds is like a, it's like an Evil evil move going silent. I don't know, but <laughs> more like 10 minutes or something. Uh, Brian was completely freaked out because like for a while we were thinking, well, maybe he just said something that was accidentally too close to the truth. He had the phone records, tried to get back in touch with Art to clear everything up. He never could. Art either didn't want to believe because it was good for the show to not believe or I'm sure art gets hit with all people faking stuff like phone phone records and things like that all the time. And it just went on and on and on and we couldn't stop and we moved on with our lives. You know, one day I'm watching, I'm listening to a Tool album and they took that phone call, the, the music band Tool and they turned it into a song at the end. So I'm listening, I'm drawing and I'm like, that's <laughs> that's what is going on? So yeah. yeah, so he ended up there. There was a movie, I think it was called Monopolis that was, okay. starts out with a recreation of his phone call. Um, and, and it goes to show these things and like, like you've had all these opportunities to tell people this was meant to be theater and it blew up in this other thing. Nobody wanted to listen to him. Nobody, no matter how many times he told it, even after he went on to, 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 to Jimmy's show to clear it up. Uh, you know, let's just say he had some negative feedback, you know, even in just trying and then there were people who just said, well, this is just another layer of disinformation, you know? <laughs> I shouldn't well, of say course that so I haven't said about disinformation. Yeah. yeah, people were like, oh, yeah. That's
2: just bullshit. <laughs> they so, told him uh, to say that, yeah. no, yeah, that, so That's a
0: crazy in story. And it
2: Brian God, Glass is you know, really his name, right? Yeah, Brian J.L. Glass. Glass. He's also okay, a co-creator
0: yeah. with, uh, with me on books like um, uh, The Mice Templar and a bunch of other stuff we've worked on together. and He's worked for Marvel and DC. And he's wow. a good guy. He's no. not out to fool anybody. It's just One of these things that just became its own life, you know? There's millions of listens to to the original video and stuff, and it's just... It's It's been insane. And he's not made a single penny off of it. He never got a single job because of it or anything. It's really caused him nothing but headaches.
2: Yeah, I can imagine, especially those who believe that he actually... It was a cover-up, and he did work at Area 51, this, that. Like, that's what happens. Look at the World War of the Worlds broadcasts. Like, people... Wanted yeah. to believe so much, you know, that they will, you know, it'll cloud your yeah. judgment. So you guys yeah. solidified yourselves into UFO lore far before Blue Book. So <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Thanks for telling that, man. I thought sure. that was a really funny story. Um, yeah. Two listener questions for you before um, before I let you go back to your life. Um, <laughs> oh, here we go. Chris, Chris on Facebook wants to know, will you be featuring Hynek and other Blue Book investigators in the comic oh.
0: book? Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't say yeah. where or when, but like I, one of the first things I did was um, I drew some some Heineck studies. You know, uh, he's, he's got such a great cartoony face. Yeah, um, he, he's, he's great at yeah. I like, can't wait for him, and you know, it'll be it'll be fun doing guys like Keho and stuff. Like we, we we you know we'll we'll get into to people that are, are part of the history that you know aren't like major stars, but stars. I hate using that that term like the, the celebrity <laughs> thing. You know, um, but there are lesser players that are that are very important um and yeah we'll be seeing lots of these characters
2: awesome that's good to know um rick on reddit as has a um comic book question how has the comic book industry changed since you first started and where it is today i mean obviously digital is probably the biggest thing but like just in terms of uh, even your creative process i would imagine is different too and
0: yeah it, it's that's a big
2: world question world. but yeah what do you what do you think yeah, it's evolved
0: so much, so much. Um, like uh, breaking into comics in the 80s and and first doing comics in the early 90s, there were literally no women creators. Like it just it right. just wasn't a thing. There were a few editors, some colorists. Um, and, and over time, um, that's opened up. Uh, so that's a huge change. And, and we're still working on it. But, you know, I mean, literally at one point, there was just not, there's nothing you know, um, mm-hmm. so there's the, the cultural acceptance, like it's it, it, it didn't just become acceptable for boys to be reading and making comics it started to become everybody in different ages so you started from there, it was like getting everybody to be felt welcome to read comics and then the, the film stuff has been the hugest change and that really helped change things in the industry um, the biggest changes now are like the digital distribution and stuff um, and there are now so many more ways to get to creatively get out there, probably in the same space as you are, whether you're looking at mm-hmm. Patreon, Kickstarter, and other fundraisers. Um, this Substack thing is different, but that's a good example about how companies are investing in comics as a way to communicate ideas and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's all really, really, really changed a lot over the years, um, all for the better. Um, one of the problems stemmed out of the best thing that happened to comics, which was comic book stores um, in the early 80s, Uh, comic book stores first started popping up. And in order to help them grow, I think it was Marvel started a a program with them for uh, discounts on direct sale books. Mm -hmm. But what happened was comics stopped going to um, newsstand racks and only to comic book stores. So the the way to sell comics became in specialty stores. Um, So it really sort of limited getting comics out to the public. Um, and now with these different distribution chains and now you've got like pen, uh, Penguin Random House has stepped in and they're starting to distribute books. So it's it's easier to get physical comics now. And if you can't, then there's stuff like the Substack thing. You could read it on um, readbookbook.com and, and then there it is. for there's a, there's a subscription for it, but you will also get um, James's other weird stuff that he's going to be putting out. Um, there's lots of material that comes with it. And... Um, yeah, there's just this wide open thing now, and I love. I'm doing World of Krypton for for VC, which is you know very mainstream, solid comic book stuff, uh, floppy comics that'll be put into a trade. Doing some Patreon comic stuff, doing the Substack thing. Um, I'm I'm open to any form of storytelling.
2: Cool. Yeah, it, I think you know it's really democratized i think the industries in many ways like you said with me like i'm i'm an independent pod- i'm on a network but i'm i make the show from scratch i don't have an editor i don't have you know anyone like doing anything so it's
0: good. it's it's a good yeah, parallel to what we're talking about yeah absolutely like you but then only you... go through a radio um station now you're hungry yeah, exactly
2: yeah. i'm 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 my own radio network as it were yeah but but then you know you have that struggle of you have like spotify creating podcasts you know cranking them out or um you know some of these big big networks and you're like oh i'm kind of getting lost in the mix but i don't see it that way man i again like you said like the more people involved i think is better for everyone and it just kind of you know, it introduces you to other people. So, you know, yeah. I'm all I'm all for it. Go Spotify, make your shows. Maybe yeah. they'll somehow find their. You know, Demi Lovato premiered a UFO show today on. You know, I was just
0: talking to my wife about that, and like she was yeah. asking about it and stuff, and and um, yeah, you know, I ultimately I think it's a good thing. It's it's not going to be a show for you and I. It's not going to be a show yeah. for your listeners for the most part. You know, like right. I'll, I'll watch it. It'll be curious and fun. The hope is that people. However, good or bad it is, it will just open that door up for people to want to learn more and to read, you know, the Betty Barty Hill story, to look into Rendlesham. That's Absolutely. what we need from it. Like the whole Tom DeLong thing and to the stars, even the the most hater of haters of all of that stuff have to admit how that changed the narrative in the public's eye. It was Absolutely. hugely important. And if Tom DeLong just wants to make T-shirts out of like UFO heads or whatever, I I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm being Kind of snarky there. He already <laughs> did something so great for the community that that got this conversation changed, that that changed the narrative of the way that we're perceived. That um, was hugely important, and and maybe this show will will do the same. Hopefully,
2: hopefully, and, yeah. And I watched the first episode, and she's she's passionate, man. She wants the truth. So hey, we'll have we'll invite anyone into our crazy <laughs> dysfunctional family um, if need be. Like like you said. The more people who get involved and uh, ask questions, the more normal the topic becomes, the more the st- stigma is shed. Yeah, so- it was
0: funny some of the reaction to like the JJ Abrams um, show, right? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it was the production value was great. Um, we were all, many of us were complaining, well, it's kind of the same. There's nothing too new. You know, maybe it's <laughs> disinformation, blah, blah, blah. But most of us are missing the point that that's, that's not here to benefit us. Like we live in this world, we're getting this information all of the time. We yep. need shows like that to get more people seriously interested in it and to to take it seriously. Um, so those are these are all great opportunities. There's like Skinwalker Ranch and stuff, and even Ancient Aliens. For I don't like what it's turned into, but it was an important part of opening up the narrative to to, to people who aren't studying it all the time.
2: Oh, totally. I um I work with the Alien Ancient Aliens company Prometheus. Uh, mm-hmm. with their alien cons, these big conferences that they oh, put yeah. on for ancient aliens fans. And the reason they brought me on was to be like, okay, we we have our thing. It's pop culture. These people, they're they're going to bring their families, have fun. Um, but we want them to learn the real history of UFOs. So they started yeah. bringing in me. They started bringing in Richard Dolan. And I thought that was great. It's like, alright. Yeah. Maybe Sucalos, big haired dude, and Aliens and Pyramids brought you here. But like, here's the actual history of ufos and 100%. what you should look into
0: yeah, yeah like i'm sure you saw it when you're at the con people who came in oh yeah at a lark they had nothing else to do and they just dragged their kids in that day but then yep. they start talking to you and they're like hey wait a minute oh that was reminds me so and so had an experience and then they they, they realized they're a little closer than they even ever thought that they were and, and they start looking into it so like all this stuff is, is fairly good
2: yeah Exactly. It it is what it is. Um. Last two questions for you, Mike. Um. Can you tell us a little about the hero initiative? I just oh. learned about this um on your website, and I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Would you mind telling us a little about that?
0: Thanks, man. That is awesome. Um. So, uh, comic books they they don't have any safety nets for anybody. Like, <laughs> um, there's no retirement plans. There's no health care. Um, you're you're completely on your own financially. in in every way there's no there's no 401ks or anything like that so a lot of us get into financial trouble um usually through health issues but there's other issues too you know um but um the heroes initiative is there to help comic book creators who are struggling um and and i said it's typically like a health thing with us i've been working for them for like 20 something years um since they started and it was always this kind of like snarky jersey joke of like oh i'm only doing all this so that you know i'll need them one day you know it's like a joke <laughs> to, to like play off that you're doing something decent um and then taki my, my wife taki was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2017 i think um and uh not only is that as scary as it sounds but financially the immediate help that she needed would have cost it's over ten thousand dollars um it's yeah. an infusion of um of medications and um, the options were she'd get that or she'd get a lesser treatment, you know? Um, and at this point, it was bad enough that when we brought her into hospital, she was in full-blown, it was called a flare-up. Like her yeah. arm is curled in like this. She can't use her left hand. We, far as far we knew, this was this was her life, you know? Um, and her initiative within like a day, 24 hours or something like that got us approved for this, um, for, for the money to, to pay for this first treatment and it got us covered. She got uh, care right away. And um, them helping us then helped us find other programs to be able to continue to pay for the the treatment and stuff, something we might not have been able to do on our own. And they've done this several times, a lot of times with artists, some who have died, some who have passed away because of their, you know, um, I had a friend with with cancer who died, Um, others that they've helped out. And then it's not all healthcare stuff. Some of it is just you know you work and you live check to check like a lot of people do and mm-hmm. then one day those checks aren't coming in very often anymore because well you get old or you can't draw right the way you used to you just fall out of favor there's all sorts of reasons um there's yeah. ageism is, is a thing in comics just like every every place else um and you can get yourself into into a bad spot and the heroes initiative is there to help out and they do it through donations so um, if you want to support creative people in hard times, uh, HeroInitiative.com is it's a great place to go.
2: That's awesome, man. And yeah, I mean, it's sad that like, it had to be a choice, you know, between yeah. full treatment or a lesser, like that shouldn't be the way it yeah. is, especially here in America. So I think that's awesome. I, you know, as someone who had a very sick mother, my whole life, um, mm-hmm. it was the same way, like. My father was the only one who could work and he did everything he could to like help her get the treatment she needed, but it was tough. And there were times where you just had to make sacrifices, but it shouldn't be that way.
0: So I I think
2: that's awesome. And, and I know it's not just for health issues as well. And people don't know, like, it doesn't matter if you're a Broadway actor or you're working for Marvel. Like these jobs are temporary. That's why we're artists. So yeah. it's it's yeah. the paychecks, yeah. it's not like you said, you're not on every good
0: month. I have work a good amount of money comes in. I can go months without any any check, without exactly. any income, you know, and I'm yep. working, but you have to it's just the way it works out. Like sometimes you'll get you'll get paid three months after finishing the job or something, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, and then and you 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 change your life to live around that way, and it's fine, you know, but sometimes yeah. you get into a jam. Yep.
2: And that's what the Hero Initiative is for. I love that. That's so cool. Thanks, thanks for bringing um, that up. Of course, of course. And of course, last question. You mentioned your Patreon. Um, I, I've read the first four pages you sent me of Galaxy oh. of Madness. But please uh, tell me about... Point. Yeah, yeah, please. St- no, you did. I just haven't gotten to it. Oh,
0: okay.
2: Yeah. Um, I was too busy reading more about Betty and Barney Hill. Um, <laughs> tell us about Galaxy of Madness, man. This sounds awesome.
0: Galaxy Manus is total fiction. It's a science fiction thing. Um, but I think people who are interested in this field would be interested in the comic as far as, A, it's fun. And so it's a fun read. It's not a heavy, you know, emotionally, turmoil of kind of thing. <laughs> um, and the basic story is about a, a girl named uh, Vig- uh, Vigil Virgo whose parents were uh, space archaeologists and basically discovered a secret about the universe that was so big that they had to leave her behind to go explore it. And they left her in charge of this guy who's basically her, her foster father, and they completely disappear. Oh, She's wow. now in, following their tracks to discover what did they discover about the universe that was so um, dangerous and big and, and crazy that they, they're gone. And I've got to go follow in their footsteps. And the foster father, who is like a father to her, and they, they do love each other, keeps kind of sabotaging her along the way. So it's this Mm -hmm. great father-daughter relationship on top of fun stuff that we like archaeology um the the origins of the universe uh um consciousness like all these things are sort of tied into the into the comic and it's just fun characters and um and again because on patreon you don't need to go to a comic book store to find it um i think our our basic subscription is five dollars every every month you get uh 22 pages plus plus 20 more than 22 pages plus uh, a bunch of extras behind the scenes stuff. And um, it's a lot of fun. And just, you know, go to patreon.com forward slash galaxy of madness and um, see if you like it.
2: I'm there, man. That sounds so cool. I love that. I love stories like that. That's so cool. Um, Awesome. Well, of course, last question. Where can we find Blue Book and everything you're up to, Mike?
0: Um, The easiest way to find Blue Book online is to go to readbluebook.com. Super simple, readbluebook.com. That brings you to James Tinian's Substack page. Um, but it goes right to the Blue Book stuff. Uh, so that's a great place to, to check it out. The first issue is absolutely free, and then you can consider whether or not you want to follow up on the rest or just hold off until we eventually figure out a way to publish it and stuff. Um, but we're concentrating on, on, on this format first. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's the easiest way. And then you can find me anywhere online, as you can see under, under my, my face there. There, the I at guess there,
2: there we go. <laughs> there you go, yeah.
0: <laughs> at Oming, both on twitter and uh instagram
2: awesome man and we'll have links in the show notes for everything and um oh will we be seeing a print edition of blue book is that ever going to happen
0: eventually eventually Eventually, but it's not on the radar right now because we've got to do the work and stuff Um, yeah you've
2: got a big story to tell still which uh which i is awesome too you mentioned digitally you will have the luxury of if you need to change something or want to change something, you can, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like getting the director's cut almost. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have kept you far longer than I told you we were going to be. So please go work on blue book. I'm so excited for whatever comes next with that and everything you're doing. And of course, thank you so much for coming on somewhere in the skies.
0: Thanks, man. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much.